fucking get the introductions out of the way. It's Jason DeMarco, the uh, Vice President, Creative Director for Adult Swim On Air. And sometimes I say A&R for William Street Records, but I don't, that's kind of a bullshit fake title, so not this time. Why? What? Well, because um, I was the A&R for William Street Records, which was Adult Swim's in-house record label, but we quickly realized, oh, you can't sell fucking records anymore. It was like for fun. It was three people, and you can't have a label with three people working for a major corporation. Like, I think our last release that we put out that you could buy was Phase One, and the one before that was Killer Mike Rap Music. Hardcore G shit, homie, all play around, ain't shit, sweet by the peach, this Atlanta clown. Home of the dealers and the strippers and the clubs, though. Catch you coming out that magic city with a snub, ho. Lurking in the club on tourist motherfuckers. Welcome to Atlanta, up the jury, motherfucker. And then we just said... Okay, from now on, it's a marketing thing. We just, we have the money to put out music and it's a good thing for us, but we are not going to try to sell music because that's not what we do. We're a television network and the people whose job it is to sell music aren't very good at it to begin with. So God knows we're not going to be better than the people who couldn't work it out in the first place. In this case, you, you probably had budget within, like you said, a larger corporation and it was a project. It was a, it was an initiative, right? Yeah, kind of. I mean, basically we did the Danger Doom album and that was on Epitaph and it did really well. It sold like 350,000, which it would never have sold now, but this is almost 10 years ago. Just to interrupt real quick, how much did how much did MCP pants sell? <laughs> yeah. I want candy, bubble gum and taffy. Skip to the sweet shop with my sweetheart Sandy. Got my penny safe, so I'm a sugar daddy. I'm a Hugh Crowan, she my Jessica Candy. I want candy. What led you to get to the the singles move, which for some reason worked almost as well as like, you know, the sub pop singles idea. The, these initiatives, it seems like a foolproof concept to do, you know, because people know there's going to be a different artist and it's going to have its own art direction and, and it's going to be this little object. Somehow the singles club idea just it doesn't fail somehow. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 sort of the mystery box aspect that people like about it, that every week there's something different. So for us, we started with Danger Doom and we realized, oh, we could have made some money off of that. But Epitaph took all the money because we made a really stupid deal with Epitaph and we didn't understand music business percentages. And we basically didn't make a dime on that and did all the work for Epitaph who made all the money. And hey, good for them. But we didn't want to do that again. So we started thinking, well, why don't we just create our own label? It can't be that hard. So we created William Street Records, and mostly it was a vehicle for soundtracks and one-off weird records. And somewhere like six years ago, the label manager of William Street Records, a woman named Amanda Walden, said, hey, I want to do like a singles club. So I said, look, you know, as part of my job, I work with the sponsors and, and on, you know, clients. And I said, what if I could convince someone to pay for this and we just give them away? Because look, people love free. It's always a good entry point. <laughs> <laughs> so it worked. Um, year one, we had nine songs. It was eight songs plus a bonus track, and it was sponsored by Kia. The thing that interests me about this, the Singles Club, is it's a brand like Adult Swim. It's television, right? So it has a sort of weird neutrality to it in terms of extending the brand to be a, a blessing or a guarantor of quality for something like music. And you have things like the Sour Patch fucking thing they're doing, which is the same. It's the same thing that Converse did. Converse and Sour Patch is a big real world brick and mortar 
crazy fucking initiative. I don't understand what they think they're going to get out of that. Where to me, the Adult Swim thing is more comparable to Mountain Dew's, you know, green label initiative. These are ideas that people who are, you know, creatives inside um, stayed brands that are brick and mortar brands that sell real products. What can we do? We have all this marketing budget and it never does anything. Our bottom line is always flat. So let's like shoot a fucking rocket off to the left and put out some totally fucking crazy, you know, record by some band that's no one's even heard of. And we'll get some cachet out of that. You seem to have a much lighter touch is how I'd put it. You seem to get artists that are not the type of artists that would be willing to do these sorts of things, whether it's out of a sense of like naive integrity or whatever, or just being scared, you tend, <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've, you, you know, when you see the bands that are going to the Sour Patch house, it's like bands that might as well be going to the Playboy Mansion. Like they're totally down for all the LA bullshit. Well, the other thing is that it, even like, even the Sour Patch house, while they live there, they have to create content for Sour Patch, which a lot of artists, we're lucky because a lot of artists watch Adult Swim when they're on tour because it's the only thing on in the middle of the night. And they're, on acid so right and it's i mean it's a channel that appeals to mostly the demo of the same age group that makes music you know so we have it a little easy and then there's a thing which is that all of the ways we approach artists are super clean they're not complicated we're not trying to own their shit or make them do anything they don't want to do it's simply we want a song it has to be a new or unreleased song we want to put it out and let people download it for free for a mutually agreed upon period of time. And we're willing to pay you this amount of money to do it. And we will put your name on television every single night in front of 2 million people on average, every time they see your name. And while we can't guarantee that helps you, we think it can't hurt. Plus, we'll give you this bag of money that fell out of the sky. <laughs> you will own the song. You can do whatever you want with the song after we're done with it. There's a small exclusivity period. And after that, you own it. You can put it on your album. You can sell it. You can make a video for it. You can do whatever you want. We don't own it. We're just licensing it. You know, your mindset is the same mindset we had when all these fucking compilations were coming out in the 90s. So the only way that you can get material and try to get a record out is you just try to get one band. And then when you get that band, you tell everybody in the fucking world, we're doing a comp, braids on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a two CD comp. You have the whole thing in your head of what it's going to be, but then you have to get the reputation of the band to get other bands to chase the ambulance. A, there's no money behind it. The bands get no money. And then the people who did the comps got really fucking possessive about the comp tracks not showing up on these, you know, rare B-side, you know, two CD compilations that people would put out of songs nobody ever fucking cared about in the first place. It's a double whammy to me that the way you're doing it is from the same, it's the same mentality of like, I want to create through me a venue for bands to put out new material. But the craziest thing to me is that you have a fucking front loaded lockup where this ends and I literally don't care. You can release the exact same recording yourself again. Not only are you freeing them from the stricture of like all that nonsense, you're paying them too, which no one ever did in the first place. It took me a long time to convince our lawyers they should let me make those sorts of deals because they were used to making the normal types of deals. We're like, we're the big corporation and you're going to do what we want or you're not going to be a part of it. And that's how they wanted to negotiate the deals. But that was detrimental to relationships with the artists. So I basically had to wade in there and get in 
a bunch of arguments um, because I was asking them to do something they hadn't done. How do you feel about the balance between the artist being an entitled baby and the, the other idea, which is that the corporation is like completely heavy handed and arrogant and they think that they can do whatever they want and you're lucky to even have this shot. My default setting is the corporation has all the fucking cards. I either do this deal or I put out a fucking tape. Yeah, the corporations have all the cards, period, in all of our lives. There's no like getting around that. That's just a fact. It gets stickier when you're saying, I'm an artist, I make art, versus I'm dealing with a company that is about commerce and my art is their commerce. So the line gets blurry. And yeah, many artists are entitled babies and don't want to realize that times have changed. You need the corporation. They don't really need you. There are some artists who I think don't have the taste for or the wherewithal to figure out how to work the system because that's what I'm doing. I don't really, I'm not mad at anybody for the way they approach it. When I get sort of annoyed with an artist is when they do it and then they try to make it like the the corporation's fault. And it's like, well, you went into it with open eyes. I mean, you knew what you were doing. Like that's when... When people are disingenuous is when I start to sort of get annoyed with them. That's more where I come from. Uh, no, I can't. I can't. Forget what? it. No, we can't. I cannot bring up Grimes because I can't air it because <laughs> people will go fucking apeshit. But dude, for me, when Grimes goes on fucking some radio station and is like, I just, I hate all the bloggers who stole, <laughs> who stole my creativity, who told me I couldn't do anything because I'm a woman. It's like, dude, you're a fucking celebrity. You open that door. <laughs> If you yeah, can't I mean, if, if you can't hack it, go back to fucking McGill and finish your degree. I just think I think in another time Grimes would have been a totally different artist and I think that there there are ways in which this current climate encourages some people's worst sort of self-absorbed thoughts and of course but no but I'm, I'm taking it to a different place where i'm saying the industry and the promoters who are doing anything they can to create a story they would love for grimes to go out there and sell the victim story and paint this like you know me versus the media oh for sure when in sure. in reality it's like you signed up for everything that's happening right now you signed up for all the assholes on the youtube comment stream nobody forced you to fucking promote yourself and make yourself an international celebrity and go fucking party with Lagerfeld and all these fucking fashion people. She went and DJed a party for $50,000 just to have them stare at her and like Sting was there. You're going to go through every one of those doors and then you're going to try and hit back on uneducated assholes who are going to say that fucking crap, but you're going to create like a total fucking straw man argument where they're the norm. That's fucking nonsense. You can't start swinging both those bats. You just fucked my narrative. You just fucked like all years of work that I've done. You and I, 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 you know, we, it's weird. We have this shared sidecar history of being kind of otaku anime nerds. And I think it stems from the same place, which is Roger Ebert reviewed Akira on at the movies. And when I saw that, I was like, what? Because I grew up with like Star Blazers and Robotech. All the same shows. I grew up with all those shows. Those are all Northeastern broadcasts. Um, Star Blazers, Robotech, and Force 5 were all, all throughout the Northeast. Uh, a lot of kids around our age saw all those shows and that was a lot of our first exposure to anime of any kind you know it, it's weird because like particularly for robotech which is a combination of what it was macross orgus 
And it was, yeah, it was three different shows mushed together to be yeah. one, one generational storyline. <laughs> and it totally, it totally fucked up the rights for those shows in America forever. forever. Yeah. Like I have four different versions of the Robotech VHS tapes, like <laughs> FHE released one, right? Yep. And, and everyone there, still hates them. Every, 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 everyone hates Harmony Gold. Harmony Gold, right? In the anime, quote unquote, the anime community, because they still hold those rights and they won't release them. So basically, you'll never see the real version in an official U.S. release because Harmony Gold holds those rights and renews them and will never let it happen because they want them. They're too busy trying to make a Robotech movie. They are a legendarily hated company in anime in the community you know because everybody knows those shows are so great and everybody would prefer a remastered beautiful looking you know right version of it uh, or new ones or new series you know they have the rights to all of that that doesn't always, that doesn't always work because robotech masters was a fucking shit show so it doesn't always work it doesn't <laughs> but, but anime fans are i mean they want when they like you they're just like anyone else and they like something they want more you know and so they'll just always hate harmony gold does tope is it toby mcguire who owns the rights to a live action I don't know if he owns the rights, but he was in, he was negotiating with them. That was the news story. I don't know how much truth there is to it, but he, he was negotiating with them as a producer and possibly a star, which I wouldn't want to see. I just wouldn't want, I mean, I don't hate Tobey Maguire or anything. I just don't picture him as a badass fighter pilot. Like this is not, nah, no, uh, it's not something I keep up on anymore. The last thing I freaked out about was the kid who mashed up the Blu-ray of Akira with the original pioneer audio. Oh yeah. 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 So I got that off a torrent cause there's no other way to get it. And I was just like in heaven because you got this 10 not official anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's this 1080p of the new Blu-ray with the original pioneer audio, which is just, it's just cause we grew up with it. I, I can't deal with the new audio. The new one doesn't bother me so much, but I, when we showed, we showed Akira a couple of years back on Toonami and tons of people reached out and we're like, Oh man, not the pioneer dub. I find old dubs pleasing because I have a nostalgia for when I was watching them. And like, it's interesting to me as a person who puts things that are sometimes older in front of young people professionally to show sort of younger audiences, some of this older anime sometimes and to see their reactions where they're just like, this is corny as shit. Like when they hear the dub, because dubs are different now. They're they're actually way better generally than they ever were before. So we have this history with like, you know, Americanized runs of, of anime because basically these guys looked at these stories like, it's just like Star Wars. It's going to sell a mint. The market then was all the syndication. So what they had to do was they had to create something that had a minimum number of episodes. It was usually somewhere in the 70s. Make it fit standards across the entire country, which meant basically completely transform it so that it would fit into American culture more because there was no appetite as far as they knew for anime. They just knew American kids watched cartoons. Now anime fans can see something that aired yesterday in Japan, you know, subtitled. Is that the kind of career trajectory that brought you to where you are was was licensing deals for for anime series? I mean, so I worked at TNT for two years. And while I was there, the guy that got me the job, he was hired by Cartoon Network. And they said, hey, we need you to come up with an afternoon block of cartoon action programming for mostly for boys, but for kids coming home from school. Together, we created Toonami. Toonami ran for 11 years on Cartoon Network. I had been involved in licensing anime deals. I had been involved in making original shows like Big O and IGPX. And then Toonami was canceled in 2008. And then it was brought back as an April Fool's joke. Like just one night, my boss was like, 
why don't we just like flip the switch and Adult Swim's just Toonami all night? Like just flip people out, just run old Toonami stuff. And people flipped out tons and tons and tons of emails and phone calls and letters like, bring, bring it back, bring it back. So a couple months later, we brought it back. And so now we're still on the air every Saturday night and you know, continuing to make Toonami 18 years after I started it, which is just can't even explain how weird that is. One of the very specific memories for me when Adult Swim was coming to the fore was that you were going to air home movies. You know, Maura Johnston and a number of other people. Uh, There's another friend of ours in Boston, Jake Wilson. We were like psychotic over home movies. Jake Wilson went to uh, an H. John Benjamin stand-up show in Worcester or some shit. And he, he cornered him after the set. He was, I think he was literally just doing stand up comedy. He cornered him after the set and he was like, Can you say hi to my friend Chris? We were just nuts for that show because we'd all watch Dr. Katz and everything, but this seemed to be, this was so much cuter and funnier. But this happened right at 9 11, right? Oh, yeah, that's true. It did. I mean, Adult, yeah, Swim, me- Adult Swim launched the week before 9 11. Did we really? I mean, I knew we launched in 2001. I just didn't. I, wow. Uh- I'll cut that out. But okay, yeah. so shortly after that, the big thing was you got Futurama on Adult Swim. Our thinking was, you know, we, we, we have to be broader in the earlier hours of the night because there's more people watching. And then as the night goes later, there'll be less people watching and then we have a little more space to be weirder. So we sort of get them in the door with the, the type of comedy that they're used to. And then we sort of get them into the weirder stuff that got us more excited in our originals and stuff as the night went on. <laughs> Hello. Uh, hello. Is this, uh, uh, what is this is Mr. Brown sample of the, uh. I'm sorry, you have the wrong number. Damn it! And that's kind of still the way it works now. But yeah, Futurama was our first big, Futurama and then Family Guy changed everything. I mean, Family Guy was the thing that made it all sort of fall into place. Family Guy and Futurama is the time when you got William Street going, sort of, 2007, 2006. And you sort of got this thing off the ground with some people who ended up media personalities. I mean, currently, you've got, you started with Def Jux and LP, right? It was Danger Doom, and then it was, and that was right when Danger Mouse did the, the Grey album, and Doom had just come off of Mad Villain, so they were pretty hot. And then it was, we did an album with Stone's Throw called Chrome Children that was sort of a partnership and then our first free album was Chocolate Swim. And then the next one was Death Swim, which was the, the Def Jux thing. And that was how I met um, LP. It almost seems like if you look at the gaps, you've been the ones backing these guys through this whole period after the initial LP fame, like 2003, 2004, when Def Jux is like getting its initial kind of hardcore underground swell. After that, there's kind of this void of where are we going from here? It's you guys who picked them up. Well, we certainly helped. I mean, you know, like we did Def Swim and then we did a licensing deal with them. I met Elle and we formed a friendship because we were like-minded and I, of course, love his music and have and continue to. You know, honestly, much of the way things have happened in my career is because 
I met someone and we had a mutual understanding or agreement or friendship. And then I just doubled down on that. And I've gotten burned, of course, but like uh, the ones that have paid off have paid off in a way bigger way. And I mean, the same thing with Killer Mike, like he was kind of at that period where he was releasing mixtapes. And we had to do the soundtrack for the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie and someone dropped out. We needed a rap song and I needed it like within a week, like super last minute. And a mutual friend of ours was like, well, you should call Killer Mike. You know, he's always got, he's got tons and tons of songs. He's just been making mixtapes. And so I called him and we just sort of hit it off and we, you know, we got the song from him and then he came in and was like, yo, I want to do voiceover work. I just want to work with you guys. I don't really care what it is. And that led to him saying, Hey, I want to make an album with you guys. And I was like, Mike, we're not even, we're barely a real label. We can't put out a record the way you're used to. And he said, I don't give a shit about any of that. I just want to do something that nobody else would let me do. And I believe you guys will just, I think you, I trust you guys. And I think you guys will help me do something that I would not have done before. And so that's when we started talking and LP came into the conversation because I said, well, you need to work with this guy. Bitch, give it up. I stand adjacent to Satan. Bad man, chilling the villains. It's here, no Jesus is here. I hear the demons in my ear. And I want it, I need it, see it. I take it, never faking. Wrap you motherfuckers up. Leave you naked to school. I'm a top tag team for two summers. Live and let live. Fuck you, cuz. Cause that's a fool's honor. I'm walking toting on two llamas. I had individually met each of those people and thought they were great artists as well as just reliable, good people. And that led to me just saying, well, you know, let's keep doing more with you and see where it goes. Like, honestly, part of anything I've done that succeeded has been because I've been working at a company where they weren't forcing me to do something they let me keep going and it was much more of a long lead thing than the way most companies work which is did it work no okay next thing and uh, one of the things to me that proves that out is the ghostly swim thing because you just released last year a follow-up to ghostly swim which seemed like the first ghostly swim seemed like yeah you've taken it a little too far We've been with, working with Ghostly for, I think, a decade. So we did Ghostly Swim, and uh, though you may have th- thought it was done, it did well download-wise, and we kept hearing, people kept telling us they wanted us to do another one. Then I'm and- wrong, and they're right. That's how it goes. <laughs> so they so they kept telling us, like, you know, will you please, when are you guys going to do another one? And so the opportunity just came around again, and... I thought, you know, why not? I mean, so for me, that the, the bar to success for these projects, luckily, there is no metric. Like, if it doesn't get X downloads, I'm not told, well, that project failed. No one, my company is not worried about that. All they're worried about is, did, the, did people like it overall? Did it, like, was it well-received? Uh, did Was everyone happy with it? Did you blow a ton of money on it? And if yes, it was well-received. No, I didn't blow any money on it. It doesn't even matter how many downloads it gets. That only matters to me. There's no one tracking how many downloads and therefore that makes it a failure. So that's an incredible gift I'm given. Despite the fact that you're a sub-imprint of Warner Music Group and ADA, which Warner owns, you came out and said you're never going to release another album. No more physical media. After Ghostly, right? Yeah, we don't have an ADA deal anymore. That's expired. Yeah, we let it expire. We just is said, that what? So you just said the whole thing is just not worth it? We just weren't. We couldn't, we couldn't make the money work. I mean, you know, even Killer Mike's record sold like 
50,000 copies. And, you know, we still barely broke even. Like, I just don't think that the way a giant company is going to put out a record with a giant distributor works financially the way we wanted to do it. Like, I just don't. So it was sort of a mutual decision from everyone involved to just, it's not worth the time and effort to break even on something when we could probably just put it out for free. The way I would crystallize that is you need to prove that this music is worth existing in a physical space. You go out and you make your, you know, fucking splash on Twitter and Bandcamp and SoundCloud and you do all this crap. You go out there, but if you actually leg it and tour, if you do it enough that you become a substantial band, a substantial artist, if you become Run the Jewels where you're a cultural flashpoint and then you release the CD, they're going to buy it because you are you're worth that. You you amount to that. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at Run the Jewels, they're like a good example of people who have chosen to do something differently that has worked. They released their shit for free. And the only reason it ever got a physical release was because it did so well and they could do shows and then they could flip that into a deal with a label and then they flip that into a deal with another label. But they're still releasing all their music for free. And... It goes against all convention that, you know, everything people think about, oh, if you release the music free, no one's going to buy it. That's not true either. It's just depends on the band, depends on how they're doing it, depends on how much people care. Fuck the slow-mo. Fashion slave, you protested to get in a fucking Everything I scribble like the anarchist Look, look, look good Posing in the center for the cookbook Black on black on black with the ski mask That is my cookbook You spend a shitload of time responding to kids on Ask FM. <laughs> I do. When I open when I open Ask FM, I'm looking to see what people have asked me, but I can't because I have 500 <laughs> answers from Jason DeMarco about you know, are you gonna fucking license some obscure fucking anime from 1973? Man, there were some times where if I had been in trouble and been able to reach out to even a stranger who would have given me five words that would have helped me not feel like a piece of shit. I might have made a better decision myself in some instances. I just feel like as a human being on earth, it's sort of my responsibility that if somebody's asking me and they're sincere, the least I can do is answer them sincerely. It may not be what they want to hear, but it will be whatever I think the truth is. And I know that sounds a little hokey, but like that's genuinely why I do it. I don't do it because I enjoy being asked for the billionth time why I'm not showing whatever show somebody's mad that I'm not showing. I do it because they're out of one out of, out of 40 questions is somebody with a real problem or a real question. And sometimes I get some great questions. And so for me, the exercise of thinking about that and thinking about those answers is valuable to my thinking about the world. <laughs> 